Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equality, inclusion and diversity in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Pips Bunce of Credit Suisse and Ed Thompson of Optimize. Pip Spunce is the Head of Global Markets Technology Core Engineering Strategic Programs at Credit Suisse and has been working in the IT industry for more than 25 years and across many different sectors. Pips is recognised as a diversity and inclusion leader and influencer, having won many awards including the Financial Times and Heroes Female Champions of Women in Business, the FT and Outstanding LGBT Executive Leader and the British LGBT Awards. Pips identifies as gender fluid and non-binary and so on any given day decides how to express according to gender. And as non-binary, Pips does not identify as either the binary gender of male or female. Pips, welcome to the show. Hello, Julia. Thank you very much. And it's a pleasure and honour to be here. Um, Ed Thompson is the founder and CEO of Optimize. Optimize helps organisations like Google, Microsoft, JP Morgan attract, hire and retain neurodiverse talent through training and tailored strategy programmes. Last year, Ed co-authored a research report, Neurodiversity at Work, produced with the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. And prior to Optimize, Ed co-founded the Tech City Stars Apprenticeships Programme in London, while on the leadership team of a pan-European tech company. So Ed, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And as always, at the start of the show, we invite each guest to talk about what they're up to at the moment. So Pips, let's start with you. Uh, what are you focused on at the moment? Um, I think I'm focused on a range of different, uh, I guess, initiatives. You know, a lot of them are focused around trying to really promote and increase LGBT inclusion. So I, I'm really proud to be our Credit Suisse co-lead of our LGBT and Ally programme. You know, the main focus of that is really to foster an environment in the workplace and society where, you know, all the forms of diversity is you know, caught in terms of its inclusion, and everyone is sort of celebrated rather than tolerated. Um, you know, that involves a lot of different things, working on making sure that we're included in the Stonewall Top 100 listing is a good example. Um, I do a lot of external partnership with firms such as Stonewall, Jerez, Diversity Role Models, Outstanding, again, really trying to promote, you know, trans inclusion, understanding of different gender identities, and more, you know, generally across the LGBTQI inclusion space. Um, I'm, you know, I'm really proud to have several mentees at Credit Suisse as part of our reverse mentoring program. You know, one such example is our EMEA CEO and group CFO, David Mavers. You know, I've also global head of Group Ops, you know, really trying to promote the importance of diversity inclusion and particularly LGBTQI inclusion at the very top of the house. Um, you know, that spans across outside of the workplace as well. So I'm also doing a lot of work with schools, colleges, universities, again, trying to promote how important LGBT inclusion is. You know, when we've now got sort of 20% of Generation Z millennials identifying as LGBTQI, 12% identifying as gender non-conforming, hence trans, non-binary and gender fluid. It's really important that we as a society make sure our workplaces are inclusive to all of these people to ensure we do build that pipeline of talent. So for me, it's really just trying to focus on making the workplace a much more inclusive, better place and spreading the word about why inclusion is so important and you know making sure that it's you know top of the house priority wise. And we'll certainly be exploring that in some detail in terms of how organisations can embrace this talent group, which is incredibly important. Wonderful. Thank you, Pips. Ed, let me talk to you. What, what are you focused on at the moment? Yeah, so a big part of our offering at Optimize is on-demand courseware, online training for employers around neurodiversity at work. 
And we have just launched a new product, which has actually come from our advisory board, inspired by our client advisory board, which is a 30-minute introduction, nine modules to neurodiversity at work, designed to be very short, very quick. And I think designed on the basis that ultimately everybody needs to know something about this topic. But actually everybody doesn't necessarily need to know a huge amount. The difference between a, a complete lack of understanding and even a, 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 what is there being sort of warped by stereotypes and actually this sort of mental door open to actually this is, you know, a, a really substantial part of my, should be a really substantial part of my daily sort of working life, I think is is huge. So we've launched that, excited about that. Obviously working with our existing clients and, and new clients and also advocating for neurodiversity at work. And very interestingly, actually in the UK, over the next sort of month or so, talking with people in a number of different sectors, so public sector, finance, uh, talking to people in law, talking to people in media and advertising. And so seeing a lot of different sectors become interested in this topic and actually seeing that debate move from sort of what's this all about to, okay, we think we get it now and what should we be doing about it? Which is wonderful because we we are being asked more and more about uh, neurodiversity in the mix of diversity and inclusion as as a whole. So yeah, plenty there to explore as we go through the show. So thank you very much indeed. Um, so Pips, let me come to you first of all. Uh, um, and as far as you're comfortable to share, we're really interested to hear a, a bit about your story as well. Um, have you always presented as non-binary? Um, I think I know I was perhaps slightly different to other people at a very early age. So for me, it was personally about four or five years old when I first realised that you know. I didn't know the terms like gender fluid and non-binary or transgender at that age, but I knew, you know, I like to express differently. So I'd also, you know, I'd like my normal stereotypical and I don't like to gender stereotype, but I'd like my boy things, but I'd also like to have dresses and tiaras and, you know, make sure I could express in both forms of expression, I guess. Um, coming out personally and family and friends, etc. All you know, always been open and out to everybody. You know, equally I've been married for 23 years. My children are now like 22 and 19. Again, you know, they've always known my true identity. Um, but I think, you know, the big, the bigger challenge I personally found was coming out in the corporate workplace, you know, and that was not because the, the workplace was not ready for that. It was more my own barriers that I put up, you know, I was more concerned about would I be accepted and included for perhaps being different to other people. And more so, you know, did people understand the identity that, you know, I'm going to come out as because, you know, I think I only come out six years ago or so in the corporate workplace. I think, you know, they, there was a good understanding at the time of general trans identities, but not so much more of the more, I guess, nuanced or, you know, some of their sub identities. So gender fluidity, non-binary, et cetera. I, I think I was more concerned that people wouldn't comprehend or accept those. Now, you know, thankfully that's totally not the case. Um, I use that sort of as part of the ally program to really make sure that intersectionality, you know, across all forms of LGBTQI especially was included, make sure that trans inclusion was part of that journey. And, you know, the big thing I find is it's, it's all about educating people. You know, I think once people understand that trans is a very wide umbrella, there's a lot of different identities within there. And some of the differences between those you know, it's a case of bringing them on that journey. And, you know, I've since seen now that we've got all of the support and infrastructure and stuff in place, so many more people are coming out both in, you know, the company, in the sector, in other sectors. So I think, you know, the biggest challenge for me was just coming out in the corporate workplace. But I think having allied programs in place made such a difference because it's quite emotional impacting how much support you do then realise because you're so worried how people are going to accept you and understand you. But that was, you know, my own concerns were totally unfounded. 
And and when you're so thinking about your your day job, because I mean you're incredibly accomplished in the world of technology, and and I, I'm really interested because it's very very easy to make assumptions about the type of people who work in technology. Do you think the the fact that it was a it was a technology division uh, had had a part to play in either the reason why you took your time to come out, or in fact actually was very uh, accepting when you did? Um, yeah, I, I think you know certainly credit suisse. You know we've got large technical departments, we've got business, etc. A lot of different things. It's no, I think it was more in my own sort of space. You know, I needed to feel that I had support and I needed to feel ready to embrace my, you know, true authenticity. You know, I've certainly been amazed at the impact and response from people as part of coming out. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we've had to put in place to make sure that we are fully trans-inclusive, whether that's, you know, dress code or trans-inclusive healthcare or dual pass cards or a lot of those sort of nuances associated particularly to non-binary identities. But no, the company as a, as a whole have been absolutely amazing. And, you know, I certainly experienced no challenges or negativity is you know I, I'd be, I was very touched and continue to be by how supportive people are in terms of really appreciating someone going out of their way to be a truly authentic because it, it has such an impact on how committed you are to the firm how enthused you are but also the relationships you build with people that you work with and I make a point of whoever I'm going to see on a given day whether it's a you know a client or my colleagues or a vendor or whatever I will absolutely never change how I choose to express on that day because you know, I know that I'm, you know, I am fully supported and accepted. One of the things we always talk about is uh, the importance of of being authentic at work and and sort of bringing your true self to work. But also, we we frame the the podcast a lot around um, you know the reason why diversity inclusion matters is about uh, a commercial imperative and being uh, you know the best you possibly can do, being part of high performing teams. And I'm interested to know whether uh, it. Having presented then as non-binary, whether that's helped you in any way in your commercial accomplishment? Um, I, I think it's had a huge impact, you know, both on how I perform and how I sort of react and, you know, work with the company, but also, I guess, the relationships that I'm forming and, you know, the senior partnerships I'm then involved with. So I think it's definitely had a, a massive positive influence. Um, you know, I think people really, it really resonates with people if you're being totally open, honest and authentic in who you are. You know, there's all sorts of statistics from Stomal and proven sources about how much more engaged and productive people are if they're being authentic and they're not hiding any aspect of themselves. So I think I totally get that. You know, Credit Suisse have done loads of research in terms of how much more financially productive firms are that are diverse. Absolutely. But I think for us, it's more, we know it's the right thing to do. Uh, but, you know, I've certainly seen that for me personally. It's um, had a very good impact. You know, you get the platform, you get the visibility, but you can also influence so many more people because having senior support, having role models at all levels of the firm and empowering people through that personal lived experience, that makes such a difference. And I think that gets people on board to make sure that they are an ally because we always encourage people to sign up as LGBT allies because, you know, you can't change the culture of a workplace by writing a policy. You have to change people's hearts and minds and have them really understand why it's important and sort of bring them into the conversation. And when you talk about having the conversation, uh, I, one of the things we talk a lot about on the on the podcast is about uh, race. For example, our very first episode was on race. We talk a lot about race. And the reason we do that is because actually people are inherently, arguably, a little reluctant to talk about race for fear of getting the language wrong. For the listeners, can you provide any colour on how we, what sort of language should we be using? Sure. Um, I mean, it's it's no wonder that people do get confused sometimes because, you know, even if you look at Facebook, there's like 74 plus different ways of how you can identify your gender identity or gender expression. So, you know, that in itself makes people a bit concerned or apprehensive about using the wrong terms or labels or names or whatever. I think my advice is always, 
you know, particularly on the whole trans spectrum, it's important to ask the person, you know, see how they want to be referred to. For me personally, I prefer to default to her, she as a pronoun. I like to use MX, which is the gender neutral sort of title. You know, it's important to make sure that your systems and firms have that support in place. But that's different for everybody. I equally know other non-binary or gender fluid people that might default to the other way, might be want to, you know, change on a daily basis, whatever. It's important to ask what that individual person wants because it's much better and much nicer for them to know that, you know, you you care and you want to do the right thing rather than just make an assumption. It's To be honest, it's exactly the same as when we're talking about other forms of LGBT inclusion. You know, don't always default to referring to someone's husband or wife. Don't assume a given gender in terms of, you know, their partner. So always try and either find out or, you know, use a neutral terminology until you are sure. And the other important thing is people will make a mistake. You know, you can very easily tell if it's intentional or not. You know, make it clear that if they do, fine, apologise, move on. Because unless you have people feeling happy and confident and empowered to have these conversations and talk about this stuff, that's how you get people informed and educated. And that's where real progress is made. And I think that there's much of that that comes through in neurodiversity as well in terms of how we describe uh, forms of neurodiversity or attributes of neurodiversity. But before we get into that, Ed, let me bring you in here. So, so what led you to becoming an authority in the topic? Yeah, so back to the apprenticeship programme you Referred to, uh, I'd led talent initiatives in the tech sector in London. I think that had made me realise a number of things. And one was that the talent shortages are real and it's not simply tech and it's not simply London. These are global uh, talent challenges. Manpower report uh, in 2018, I think, talked about 50% of UK employers struggling to meet talent needs. That's similar to what we've seen in, in the US. And so after building that, I actually went to the States and I was curious to see what are organizations doing there in terms of alternative talent sourcing. And it was sort of timed with some of the embryonic interest around neurodiversity at work. Now, we actually started by creating some training for autistic job seekers uh, using some of the same uh, curriculum and, and, and tools that we'd used in the apprenticeship program. But it became quite clear, actually, that you know here sort of similarly was a huge pool of talent and the cog in the wheel was really on the employer side and employers actually not knowing how to include it. So that's where we decided to focus uh, ever since. We developed a, a partnership with Microsoft, who are one of the pioneering firms in this space. And we have, I think, re realized sort of from the beginning that nobody, not Microsoft, not one particular advisor, not one particular person who has had these experiences would have all the answers here. So over the last three years, what we've done is we've built these relationships globally with leading employers, with universities that have really committed time and money to research in this area, uh, to building relationships with neurodiversity thought leaders, but also with the community. And so we've conducted very extensive focus groups to understand, you know, what is it like to, you know, be autistic and have, uh, you know, a, a, and, and go through a, a corporate recruitment program and what are some of the friction points on the basis that, you know, the, the insights and maybe the identification of some of these friction points can come from anywhere. It can come from a manager at Microsoft, can come from an individual, can come from a, a thought leader, can come from some research. And what we've been doing is in the middle of that, taking all of that, packaging it, and then giving that out in, you know, to employers in a way that they can actually get access to some of those sort of best practice tactics in terms of inclusion. Could you share some examples on some of the sticking points that uh, the individuals or organisations sort of present in the recruitment process? We like to think about it in terms of attract, hire and retain. 
So if you're an if you're an organization, you can talk about the recruitment process. But the first problem you've got in most cases is uh, neurodivergent people won't necessarily know that you are an inclusive employer. So you look at most organizations; they'll talk about at their commitment to DNI. Very rarely is neurodiversity mentioned in that. So right off the bat, people are thinking, well. You know, maybe this isn't the type of organization for me. They'll see uh, case studies of people from, you know, minority groups, but nothing around this. So I think the first challenge is, is that, you know, are you building the relationships and are you sort of push-pull? Are you demonstrating your your interest and, and commitment? And then in the hiring process, I think you've got, you know, potential pitfalls sort of right the way through. These are processes that have been designed for neurotypicals um, right through um, interviewing. That's obviously an obvious challenge. I mean, to some extent, you could say an interview is a test of social competence. So somebody who performs very strongly at a particular task, but less so in a sort of pressured social situation might be um, excluded there. And that's an actually interesting um, data point there from, from Microsoft. So Microsoft, of course, have a brand where people will apply to them. But what they found is that in their autism hiring program, about half of the people who are now on that program and succeeding had previously applied and not got in. So that what they've done is sort of really made tangible this kind of boulder in the road. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's these friction points, things like job descriptions, you know, busy managers, you know, reusing job descriptions from last year. And that job description includes every possible kind of skill and, you know, attribute great communication skills uh, and, and so on you know, and, and a lot of business jargon, you know, these things, these are things that can put people off applying or in some places can confuse people, you know, from a much broader demographic, maybe veterans who are used to, you know, terminology from another industry, maybe people who English isn't their first language, you know, and so on. So they're pretty simple things to change generally with universal impact. It's just about, you know, do we know what we're doing? And when we think about the uh, the banner that is neurodiversity, and you've mentioned there autism, for example, could you shed some light on on other attributes that come through in in that that community? Sure. So I think I think principally when you're talking about neurodiversity inclusion, talking about a number of identity groups, autistic people, ADHDers, and then people with so-called learning differences, so dyspraxic and dyslexic people. Uh, but there's a lot of kind of a nuance here. I think that's really important that. Each group is particular is extremely varied. So to think that you know, there's a famous saying: if you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. I think you can't stress that enough. The other thing is that people share traits. So we meet people who will say that they are ADHDs and dyslexic, for example. And then, of course, you know, people who are identified as neurotypicals will have some of or potentially all of the traits of a particular identity group and not necessarily identify, you know, in that way but potentially not through having a, a diagnosis. And thinking about then the the, the roles, I mean, te technology is a very interesting, uh, it's probably the most common one that, that we that we hear of. Um, other roles and responsibilities, you mentioned about also different sectors as yeah. well. Are there, are there some natural jobs that are well-suited to a neurodivergent uh, ca uh, career group? Or does every job have the potential? I think it's a really interesting question. Uh, some, I think part of the reason we're talking about neurodiversity more and more is because some very glamorous tech companies have hired principally tech workers and had great success with that. So you wouldn't think of actually JP Morgan, for example, as a tech company, but you know they've been hiring people into their tech teams and they found that some of those teams have been 50% more productive with their neurodiverse stuff. But actually, uh, the way I'd answer this is in the first iteration of the training we built, we had a module called Suitable Roles. 
And we had a module called Suitable Roles because we thought probably we would find that there are some and we would think like you just asked me there, this would be something of interest to recruiters. And actually over time, and as we, you know, studied this more and conducted our focus group, we realized this was, it's like saying suitable roles for white people, right? It's its essentially a needless limitation. And for every, for example, autistic person we, talk, we spoke to who said, you know, I'm, I'm, I suppose, conformed to some stereotypes around things like, you know, an interest in tech or computing, we would meet people who completely challenge that, you know, people who work with children, you know, uh, people who are salespeople or customer service. So I think it's uh, it's a needless limitation. I think it's about including everybody. And that's the only way you're ultimately going to get the best talent. And, and in terms of organisational considerations, when bringing that talent in, and you say it's partly about attracting, but it's also about retaining and motivating as well, is any, any particular tips that organisations should think about in terms of supporting that career journey? I think if you're looking at the retention and, and, and you know, the organization as a, uh, itself, which I think is a good place to start. And with some clients we speak to, they say, you know, you know, we're talking about talent, recruiting people. We don't have neurodivergent people necessarily. And we always tell them, well, you, in that case, you have a fear problem. Because most likely, if you're a large corporate, you do. And you don't have a culture where they can be inclusive. So thinking about the elements of that person's experience, uh, that would uh, involve things like the culture, the environment, um, as Pips mentioned, the policies and the processes. And I think the first thing to do is simply ask yourselves, have any of these been at all shaped with the 100% in mind as opposed to, say, the 80%? I think if they haven't, that's probably the, you know, the place to start. I, would, I mean, such I would, as hot desking, for example. People talk about agile working in hot desking, whereas actually for some for some individuals, the, the thought of not coming to the same desk every single day where we've got everything laid out exactly as right. you left it could be Absolutely. really... Absolutely. We, we've, we've had you know a really interesting interview in one of our focus groups. Uh, a lady's working very successfully in an organisation and her manager told her that they were moving office to a sort of you know modern, open plan kind of environment. And she said, rest of her team was saying, goodness, great. You know, it's kind of, and she said, that was the moment I knew I had to leave because nobody had asked me about this. And actually there's no way that I was going to be comfortable and productive in, in that environment. Back to your question. I think, I think it, I, I would resist kind of a, a, the idea that, you know, there is a sort of two or three point kind of quick fix, but the most impactful thing we've seen and the easiest is to start talking about it. Have leaders say, we care about this back to the recruitment website, right? Let's say that actually neurodiversity is part of this mix. Because again, you know, potentially we're talking about, you know, up to 20% of the population. So really it should be. So let's start talking about it. Let's start what we call flying the flag for neurodiversity. We care about this. This is important. And why shouldn't it be? You know, this is an age where, as you said, you know, tech analytical skills uh, are valued. Uh, where everybody now accepts diversity as a competitive advantage. And everybody will talk about innovation being key. So Let's talk about it. Let's embrace it. And I think that's where good things start happening. And I think that's a perfect moment to turn to Robert and to Cynthia for some research to support today's discussion. Taking a closer look at autistic adults in employment. In 2016, the National Autistic Society found that only 16% of autistic adults were in full-time employment. The autistic community are a diverse group and specific needs should be catered for on an individual basis. In an article called Neurodiversity in the Workplace, Dr Kerry Schofield highlights a few areas where broad adaptations can be made. These are 
Simplifying processes so they are easy to navigate. Keep processes straightforward and unambiguous without increasing the cognitive load unnecessarily. Presenting information in a way that doesn't include sensory overload. Making adaptations to the environment so employees can use headphones to shut out noise if needed. And adjust lighting, or at least provide a quiet space where employees can go for a while, if needed. Allowing some flexibility in working hours and working structure. Working 9 to 5, 5 days per week, might not work for individuals who like to work alone or prefer not to work intensely for several hours at a time. Try and make it fun and engaging. Work doesn't have to be dull, whatever your neurotype. The US-based human rights campaign published its latest corporate equality index in 2019. The index rates workplaces on lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender and queer equality. Employers earning top rating took concrete steps to ensure greater equity for LGBTQ workers and their families. HRC President Chad Griffin said the top scoring companies on this year's CEI are not only establishing policies that include employees here in the United States, they are applying these policies to their global operations and impacting millions of people beyond our shores. According to a 2018 poll by the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, 72% of HR professionals said that consideration of neurodiversity wasn't included in their people management practices, and 17% said they didn't know if it was in their practices. Organisations could be missing out on the unique strengths offered by those with neurodivergence. So thank you, Cynthia and Robert, and links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. Don't forget that's diversity with a C, not with an S, diversitypodcast.com, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications of future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright's Talk and all good podcast channels. And we love a rating. It all helps promote the show. So, Ed, I was really interested in what you were saying there about you know, organisations. It's partly about awareness. It's about education, about inclusivity. Uh, but and anything particularly struck you from what Ed was saying before? There was so much good content. So, I mean, and I think what really did struck me is, A, the sort of the synergy that I could see between, you know, the content and where you're going with that. And again, what we try and promote in the Allied programme. I think the pipeline definitely is so very important because, you know, you need to make sure that you're promoting your firm to the ex- external world as a very inclusive workplace for all forms of diversity which really dovetails nicely into the whole concept at the moment of intersectionality, right? Everyone is made up of so many different bits. You know, everyone is the same but uniquely different, and no one fits into one given box. I think promoting to the outside world that you do accept all forms of people, irrespective people should be proud of who they are, and intersectionality is important. I think that really resonated. And I, and I think there is a, there is a risk that we do tend to put people in under banners and in boxes uh, as, as we go as well. Anything that particularly that, that Pips was talking about earlier that struck you as well, Ed? Yeah, absolutely. I'm um, Just on that specific point there around uh, inclusion and sort of advertising yourself as an inclusive employer. I mean, I think we're, we're in the age of Glassdoor where people will look at employers and actually get data on that. And I think the SHRM in the US said that about 30% of hires come from internal referrals. So actually, if you you know, some people uh, talk to us and say, you know, we're really interested in hiring, 
But actually often retention and looking at your existing pool, I think is the best strategy there. Lots of things that Pip said really uh, struck me. One of them was the importance of not just looking at this in terms of policies, but actually really empowering the people in the field. Because what is inclusion ultimately? It's about those relationships between team member and team member. It's about the relationship between team member and manager. How do we empower them? How do we educate them and put them in a position to actually live this? That's when you get real organizational change. And the other is, I think the point about individuality is so important. One of the dangers, even with sort of proactive and positive inclusion, is we take these labels, even new labels, and we think, okay, new label X means Y. This is how we respond to that person. And it's incredibly important. What we talk about is kind of two levels of inclusivity. The universal, there's so much that you can do that's good for everybody. But whenever we're talking about an individual, let's really talk about them as an individual, let's listen to their concerns, their needs, their traits, their preferences, their preferred language, and then let's include them as they would like to be included. I think that is really, really interesting, Ed. And I think, you know, that that totally makes sense to me. And certainly, you know, what made a lot of sense to me when I was coming out was, you know, I needed to be myself and proud of myself. So the whole Oscar Wilde quote of be yourself because everyone else is taken, that applies to every single form of diversity, right? Everyone needs to apply that, be proud of who they are and be their true authentic self. I think that's a perfect way to end the show. So Pips and Ed, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you both. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.